This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day and welcome to this episode of Countrywide. Luke Radford here with you again, coming to you from Jar Jar Wurrung lands in Bendigo. Pleasure to have your company. Coming up today, we're going to dive into the world of the Murray-Darling Basin once again. But also, will Chinese tariffs on Australian agricultural goods come to an end? You'll hear from the Chinese ambassador. We are ready to uh, sort it out and solve this dispute uh, uh, through WTO with the Labour government. If the new government in this country is ready to discuss it bilaterally, it's okay. We're ready to talk about those things. More on that coming up a little bit later in the program. First today, let's turn to the Murray-Darling Basin because the latest report card from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority shows there's still plenty of work to be done to meet the water-saving targets of Australia's largest water reform project. The new chief executive of the MDBA, Andrew McConville, has only been in the job for five weeks. Here he is speaking with National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan about what this latest independent review shows. The Basin Report card is a, is a six-month report. This is the eighth uh, in the series. And, you know, what we're doing is looking at how governments have been walk, working towards delivery of those water resource plans, water recovery, uh, sustainable diversion limits uh, and environmental water delivery. And, and certainly New South Wales water resource plans um, are, are firmly in the red, uh, as are some of the, uh, the seed lamp supply and constraint measures. So uh, we've, we've highlighted that as we have done in previous reports and perhaps a little bit more directly than, than we have in the past. It's pretty embarrassing for New South Wales, isn't it, to not completed its resource plans with just a couple of years to go in the basin plan? Well, look, you know, it, it certainly concerned uh, New South Wales' slow progress to complete their their water resource plans, and in this current update, you know, that's moved from risk of delay to high risk. When I think we, our focus... sorry, I'll just point out when we yeah. say delayed plans, they've submitted one of twenty. So we're at a, at a point now, Kath, where we actually have three plans with us uh, and another four in, in the pre-assessment phase. So we're waiting on another 13. But you know, the progress that we are seeing now is very encouraging and, and certainly we're working hard with New South Wales to help them get those other plans in. Can you just explain what a water resource plan is for those who, who aren't um, quite across it and the significance of these plans in being able to achieve the legislated plan by 2024? Yeah, well, I mean, without accredited water resource plans, and they cover each catchment, it, it means that you know, New South Wales is effectively working outside the basin's compliance framework. And, and so by submitting those plans, which set out how water is going to be used in a particular catchment, that brings them into into the frame of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And, and, and the other states, South Australia, Victoria uh, and Queensland, uh, also have water resource plans and they have been submitted and are operable. So that's what we really need to focus on with New South Wales in order that we can complete what was started 10 years ago. The other area of the report card that's quite startling is in terms of progress made on uh, sustainable diversion limit um, projects. These are projects, again, the responsibility of the state governments. It's now looking like it's going to be pretty impossible for these some of these projects, seven projects, to be uh, completed by June 2024. 
Mm. Well, look, I suppose the first point I made, there's 36 projects that were set out um, under under the STL Adjustment Mechanism uh, water-saving projects, and 29 of those are actually progressing really well and delivering uh, significant benefits and, and, and look that they will be completed by 24. You're right, Kath, there are seven projects that, that remain at high risk of not being delivered, and that's really going to require a concerted effort by the Basin states to make sure that they can do everything they can be delivered um, and deliver that expected reduction in water recovery for irrigation communities. So our focus is on working with the states to, to see what can be done to, to, to keep the momentum. Some of those are constraints projects, some of them are, are supply projects. Uh, we want to see them delivered and and. You know, if if they're not delivered by 24, then we have to look at a um, uh, a reconciliation. So, of course, we want them to to be done, uh, but we are required under our legislative framework to do a reconciliation if they're not done by 2024. When you say if if these projects aren't completed and those water savings, those 605 gigalitres aren't found by June 2024, and you have to reconcile, that's when the Commonwealth might need to make water buybacks. Well, that's a that's ultimately a, a discussion for for government in terms of how how they want to recover um, the water, and uh, you know, states have made commitments to to deliver those projects, and uh, if if uh, they're not delivered, then that's really a question for for governments as to how they might go about that. What we're required to do at the MDBA is, is what we call a Sidland reconciliation uh, come twenty twenty four of of where we're at and how much progress has been made and whether there's further adjustments to be made. Just before we wrap up, Andrew McConville, the Water for the Environment special account released its second review last week and we've heard some remarks about uh, the lack of progress towards recovering that 450 gigalitres of upwater towards that target. Uh, do you think that that water can be recovered in time? Well, look, you know, I, I think that the WISA report findings are, are not surprising, uh, Kath. I mean, our report card series, I mentioned this is the eighth. We've been indicating for some time um, that delivering that target would be very challenging and um, you know that continues to be the case. Ultimately, how that water is recovered is a question for, for government. Andrew McConville, Chief Executive at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, speaking there about the progress on the Murray-Darling Basin plan. And as he mentioned there, there's been a bit of discussion surrounding the 450 gigalitres of water, which is for the environment. So that's not for irrigation or farming. That's to just flow down the river system. Well, the federal government says all options are on the table as to how it might be achieved. Last week, we heard just two gigalitres have been recovered towards the 450 gigalitre target, which was intended to be recovered by 2024. Water Minister Tanya Plibersank says she's considering voluntary water buybacks from irrigators as one way to recover more water for the environment. But when asked if he'd discussed the possibility of buybacks with the Water Minister, Australia's Agriculture Minister Murray Watt said he hadn't. I'll be honest, I haven't discussed water matters in great detail with Tanya up until now. We've both been working on a few other things, but but clearly it's an issue that impacts on the portfolio. Um, we remain committed to our election commitment, about 450 gigalitres. Of course, we've only recently learned uh, with the release of the water account, the special account, how little the former government had done. So that task is going to be harder than what we had originally thought, but we remain committed to it. 
Agriculture Minister Murray Watt speaking there on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and the potential of water buybacks. Well, here's Nationals leader and former Water Minister David Littleproud on learning that the ministers are yet to discuss the implications of delivering the 450. Well, it shows a sheer lack of understanding of the impact taking 450 gigalitres out of the consumptive poor would have on productive agriculture. Uh, this is an important issue that needs to be addressed. You've got to understand, this is uh, Tanya Plebisek trying to rewrite history. The Murray-Darling Basin Plan was created by them. The additional 450 was created by them with a neutrality test on social and economic outcomes. Uh, so she's trying, to, she's trying to rewrite history and change the goalposts. So we've got all the states to agree on this. This uh, trauma should not be reopened. We should get on with it. The fact there's been no reports hidden. It's been quite obvious that because of the neutrality test, we couldn't recover all that 450, but that was the safeguards that Labor put in when they created the bill. Well, you're a former water minister. The 450, it's a legislated target. What does that mean? What happens if it's not delivered in time? Well, nothing, because all that it means is that it's tied to the sustainable diversion limits, which allows us to get to the 2750 and recovered through infrastructure, not necessarily buybacks. And the additional 450, um, so it, it can only be recovered if it meets those social and economic safeguards. It can't because of the safeguard mechanism that Labor put in place. So you can't rewrite history. Labor's trying to play politics with people in Adelaide, but forgetting to tell them that they actually put in place the safeguard mechanism on social and economic safeguard and, and trying to say that we're going to shift the goalposts. So, that, so there was never going to be 450 recovered because you cannot, you cannot take water away out of the consumptive pool and not destroy regional communities. Well, you were the federal minister when state and yourself, state water ministers agreed to set the strict socioeconomic criteria. Can you just tell us what was involved in that process? Was it a case of you going in and dictating to the states what was going to happen? Labor does seem really content on saying this was the, the nationals who did this. No, we did this in a bipartisan way with all the states. And in fact, I actually had a press conference after it with all the state ministers, probably one of the only water meetings that we ever had everybody on the same page. We negotiated that together in a harmonious way with leadership, not just from me, but from all the states, South Australia included, that we got to an agreement and understanding not only the impacts this would have on regional Australia by taking these 450 that the neutrality test had to recognise that. But there's also there's physical constraints in actually delivering it. There's actually perverse environmental outcomes unless you can actually deliver an extra 450 gigalitres through the Barmer choke. And we've seen, even when I was Water Minister, the perverse outcomes of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority managing that water poorly and saw that over-flooding in some of those, some of those uh, gum forests actually caused more harm than good. So this was a bipartisan approach that had leadership. It wasn't about trying to take a partisan approach for politics. I reached out to every state and territory. We got to an agreement. It was akin to getting peace in the Middle East and it was a moment I think we should be proud of and now Labor's trying to rewrite history and tear it apart and change the goalposts. That's not the Australian way. David Littleproud speaking there on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And just a reminder that back in 2020, uh, the Nationals actually ruled out under the Federal Water Minister at the time, Keith Pitt, the potential for on-farm water recovery. Well, 
Next today, the Chinese ambassador to Australia addressed the National Press Club yesterday discussing the relationship between Australia and China that has been battered by a series of disputes over the last two years. For agriculture, the resulting trade tariffs have been a blow, hitting Australian exports such as barley and wine. Zhao Chen says although Australia's new government has begun to repair the bilateral relationship, China has not yet come to the stage to discuss how to solve specific trade and political issues. We are ready to compare notes with the new government and to get engaged in, the, in this process. The, the trade disputes, as you mentioned, uh, I, I, I would rather not to use the word uh, sanctions. I think it's issue, perhaps I could categorize it in different uh, groups. Uh, one is uh, trade dispute at, uh, at the, uh, between the two governments at the government level. Uh, these are mainly on the tariffs, uh, tariffs on certain products from Australia. And those were imposed by the Chinese customs. Indeed, it happened. Yeah, that's true. It was an official uh, action. In response to the complaints from the, uh, some of the Chinese companies who are involved in the similar uh, businesses, they complain about the dumping of certain products from Australia. And once there's a complaint, according to the WTO, the Chinese government has the obligation and the right to increase tariff to protect our own industry. And the case is now in the WTO, and we are ready to sort it out and solve these disputes through WTO with the Labour government. Uh, if the new government in this country is ready to discuss it bilaterally, it's okay, we're ready to talk about those things. Second type is uh, more about uh, the people's attitudes. When there was some um, policies taken or actions taken uh, by the previous Australian government on some of the uh, major Chinese uh, companies, uh, Chinese projects, Chinese businesses in this country, for example, Huawei, ZTE, and many other Chinese companies, causing severe damages economically to these companies. Uh, basically, it's uh, stopped Huawei of any kind of business in this country. And that's a uh, huge uh, disruption to the normal business relations uh, between our two countries. And these actions have been sending very negative messages to the people in China. And uh, they're not happy, to be honest. And uh, they are, if you look at the, uh, the reaction from the public, uh, in China at that time, even nowadays, they're still not happy about uh, th those actions. And um, just like you, um, you go to the shops and you, 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 you buy something and uh, you're offended, you're not happy, then perhaps you are thinking about uh, go to some other stores to buy the similar products. So there are people in China who are really uh, calling for uh, buying some other products rather than the Australian products. That's the attitude of the public. It happened. Uh, when we have uh, some problems with our relations with other countries as well. And for this kind of problem, my expectation is that once we have a more positive messages, more positive actions, more positive policies to be taken by the new government, it's going to improve the atmosphere, and the people in China will be happy to come back to the market, to come back to Australia, to buy the, the best quality Australian products, which are very popular in China. Chinese ambassador to Australia, Zhao Chen, speaking there at the National Press Club yesterday. You're listening to Countrywide. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming.
Let's head north now to the Gulf of Carpentaria, where the tiger prawn season is underway and trawlers are heading out to sea. Michael O'Brien is from Australian-based seafoods. He spoke to Matt Brand from Corumba, where early reports suggest the fishing is a little quiet. Okay, it's been it's been going officially a week today. The fleet has been split in two. Half the fleet started in Joseph Bonaparte in Northern Territory. Um, they they were they were targeting the banana prawns in the, in JBG and and things started off pretty quiet there. I, I believe that a third of them are already on their way back to the Gulf of Carpentaria to start tiger fishing. So looks like a, looks like a slow start in. Um, Joseph Bonaparte, but the the water temperature is really cold, so it's not really surprising that um, that things haven't fired there. So a bit of a slow start. I mean, are the spotted planes up every day, or what's it like? No, in in, in Joseph Bonaparte, they don't use spotted planes. They just they general look with their sounders. The um, the tiger season starting boats in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Their start, I believe, has has been. Um, average, so the um, their brown tiger spots are, are producing a bit, and um, there's a few boats working out the front of Corumba around Bountiful and and Western Mornington, and some over at South of Groot. So they're they're pretty well spread, but I believe the majority of the fleet is just out the front. So when are you expecting fresh tiger prawns to be to be landed and start coming in for consumers? Well, the, because of the uh, the type of season we're looking at, you'll see um, most of the boats will unload onto the mothership, and that'll that'll be driven by keep, trying to keep their consumption of fuel to a, to the lowest level because of the pricing. Um, so I wouldn't expect to see um, anything back into the market until the end of the month. The price of diesel is just it's it's terrible really isn't it does it change the business plan much for a prawn season uh, it, it it does matt it's um it, it changes the whole way that you would normally fish a season you become very conservative you don't you don't go looking as much you you find a a good figure that you're happy to go up and down on and and you start late finish early so you you try and can conserve your fuel as much as possible because sometimes skippers have to go on a hunch don't they and at the moment if you get that wrong it can be costly oh yeah totally you know you you, you might be catching 400 kilo a night and move to a spot where you're only going to catch 200 there's always a risk when you make a make a jump to a different spot so yes um fuel makes it very difficult um Though we've seen the price come down a little bit in the last two or three weeks, it's. Um, I think I paid my my most I paid on the drive across. Matt was two dollars sixty. I won't say where, but two dollars sixty out of the pump in a garage was quite astounding. Gee, yeah. What about the price of prawns? How are they going? Well, well, who who knows with with um with what will happen there? Matt, sadly, we're an industry that the price takers. You, you can't add a fuel levy to your price to your prawns, so I think you'll you'll see that the cost will be will be up this um, this year, wholly and solely on the fact that um, we're we're paying three times as much for our fuel as we were this time last year. Michael O'Brien, General Manager of Australia Bay Seafood, speaking there with Matt Brand. 
Well, staying in the north now, Queensland's channel country is often said to be naturally organic, but a traditional owner says she's worried any potential unconventional gas exploration like fracking would be detrimental to its organic beef industry. It's been almost 12 months since the Queensland government quietly granted oil and gas leases in the channel country after promising for years to protect its wild rivers and floodplains. Now there are calls for the outcome of stakeholder meetings to be made public. Madeline McCosker has this report. Last year, the state government granted 11 petroleum leases across more than 250,000 hectares of land in the Channel Country to gas company Origin Energy. These leases could allow unconventional gas production, known as fracking, to occur. Locals were outraged by the news, saying they weren't consulted. As a result, the government formed an advisory group made up of traditional owners, community members, local governments, government departments and landholders. The Lake Air Basin Advisory Group met with the government a handful of times to communicate their concerns over gas exploration, with their final meeting taking place last month. Wanganguru Yalla Yandi woman Karen Monaghan has lived in Windora her whole life and grew up swimming in the Cooper Creek. She hopes it's something her grandchildren will be able to experience, but is worried gas exploration and fracking would hurt her small community, the water it relies on and the land around it. Wanganguru Yalliyindi land, it's been mistreated and our, our land is our mother. You know, that, that is part of us and who we are. It's embedded in us, our country. That's our life. So if we look after our land, our land will look after us and it's not okay on any formal way to, to mistreat our land and treat it like it's going to be there forever. Despite a frustrating lack of consultation initially, Ms Monaghan says she's hopeful communication from the government would improve. It's never too late and I think that our government just has to step up and step out and reach out to us. It's never too late. She says she's concerned about what further gas exploration would mean for beef operations in the area. And the minute we frack, you can't call it organic beef because that water runs everywhere. If fracking happens on the scale that the licences have been given, it's, um, yeah, it's not going to be good. It's going to set our land and our country back. All of the cattle sourced by OBE Organic come from the Channel Country, and they market its products as being seasoned by nature. But Managing Director Delene Ray says if fracking becomes a reality, it will risk the organic status of the basin, which is one of the last remaining free-flowing river systems in the world. From an organic producer's perspective, if there is any resource activity on an on organic producer's property, they're going to be concerned about uh, fencing to ensure that the equipment is fenced in and also any um, chemicals that are used that they're, they're stored correctly. Ms Ray says she's not convinced potential risks to the environment could be adequately mitigated, adding she fears large mining operations would not understand the needs of organic operations to retain their certification. It's a geographic masterpiece. It's a unique environment. There's nowhere like it on the planet and it is reliant on free-flowing rivers. I think it's, it's important that the Queensland Government understands that any activity in that part of the world is likely to have significant consequences with regard to water flow. It is naive to believe that it won't. 
what we know from experience is that typically the resources in the industry don't necessarily like going um, off off script. They've got one script that they'd like to use for all producers, and they'd like all producers to to accept that script. and And that's just not how it works out there. Certainly on organic properties. Daylene Ray, Managing Director of OBE Organics, ending that report by Madeline McCosker. In a statement to the ABC, a spokesperson from the Department of Resources said the Queensland Government is committed to achieving a balance between economic prosperity and ecological sustainability in the Lake Eyre Basin. Any resource project must stack up environmentally, socially and financially and is assessed against strict criteria and any application cannot be granted unless native title has been addressed properly. The ABC also sought a response from the Minister for Environment and the Great Barrier Reefs Office, which declined to comment. An Origin Energy spokesperson says it's very early days with regards to any proposed exploration activity in the permit areas. As is the case with all our operations, we put in place approved management plans, procedures and controls to protect the environment and waterways, as well as areas of cultural significance. And lastly today... How often do you buy too much fruit and veg and end up having to throw it out? One third of the world's food goes to waste. The United Nations says if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases after the United States and China. Landline's Helena Bachkovsky spoke with Francesca Goodwin-Smith from the Fight Food Waste CRC and found out how large an issue it is. It's massive. So there's 7.6 million tonnes of food wasted in Australia every year enough to fill fill the MCG 10 times over each year. So it's a huge challenge. It actually costs Australia almost $37 billion every year as well. At Brisbane's Eco-Science Precinct, scientists are working on a solution to the food waste problem. Flies. Not blowflies, houseflies or fruit flies, but black soldier flies. And they're the good guys. Professor Lau Hoffman has been working with them for 15 years. Their value lies in the larvae. So black soldier flies are basically one of the fly species that are suddenly, it's always been around, but suddenly it's become quite a promising candidate because of its ability to take any organic waste and upcycle it into a larvae which we can then utilise either as animal feed or human food. So worldwide there's this huge interest because I think worldwide we've all woken up to the fact that we have a lot of waste organic waste, so we've got to do something about it. The black soldier flies can recycle almost any type of organic waste from manure, blood from abattoirs or just plain kitchen waste into two main products. One is larvae for consumption by animals or even humans. The other is compost. The black soldier flies themselves don't eat. They only exist to reproduce. The larvae eat a lot. It's a great one. You can have it at home in your dustbin. In fact, if you leave your organic dustbin open, your compost heap, they'll most probably come and lay their own eggs because they found around us. It's good in theory, but black soldier flies aren't the silver bullet to Australia or the world's organic waste. Yet. What are the barriers of your research? One of the main ones is actually around regulations and legislation. You know, we, we've tested the larvae as a partial replacement of soya in balanced chicken diets, and we know it works. But it hasn't been regulated and approved as an animal feed yet. Francesca Goodwin-Smith says we need to rethink our idea of food waste. I think it is creating value. It's realising that it's not waste at all. Even the word waste is such a problematic word. 
because it's food. It's not waste until it ends up in the landfill. It's a resource. And there are so many ways to create value out of food that, you know, the options are truly endless. But all the hard work doesn't have to be done by scientists, council programs or special bins. At a community level, there's an app that matches households with waste to those willing to take it. Belinda and Gina live around the corner from each other. I was looking for somewhere to put our food waste because I knew that that was quite a large portion of our rubbish in our household because I cook a lot. I was looking for a way to use that and I found this share waste platform and it was very easy. So why aren't you getting rid of the waste at your own place? I did try that. I did have chickens, I did have compost, then we got rats and then we got snakes. Not my thing. Belinda takes a five-litre tub of food scraps to Gina up to twice a week. Gina and her chickens love it. So everything we get, we divert either to compost or to the chooks. So Belinda's great because she brings over broccoli and corn. They love corn. Any of that sort of fairly fresh stuff the chickens can eat. But everything else that maybe dairy and onion skins and citrus peels and things go into the compost tumblers and that eventually, you know, goes into the garden. So, yeah, we've, we've got so much great food for the chooks and for the compost cycle. Here we go. As luck would have it, Gina's compost has black soldier flies, so she can also take meat scraps. Here you go, ladies. We do, yeah. That goes into there as well, yeah. The black soldier fly larvae that exist in the compost tumblers eat everything, absolutely everything, and what comes out then just goes into a bed and gets turned over by the chooks and a bit of sun and that sort of stuff and ends up in the veggie gardens. Gina Maybush ending Helena Bajkowski's report. And that's all we've got time for on this episode of Countrywide. For more rural content, check out your local country hours coming up this week. But till then, keep it rural.